Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm thrilled to welcome Mr. Nick Curtis to the show today, who is my first non-ophthalmologist guest and is currently the CEO of Linzar. Mr. Curtis has been involved in eye care since 1987 and in healthcare since the mid-70s. He's had a tremendous career that spans multiple companies going back to Chiron and IBM to Star Surgical and has been involved in the launch of multiple products that have really helped to change the industry. I'm thrilled to welcome him to the show to hear all the incredible stories that I know he has for us today. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. You're my first industry guest and you have such an incredible history in our field. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about all the things you've done in ophthalmology. So why don't you start off? Tell us kind of about your history, where you started, how you grew up and what got you into the field. Sure. First off, thank you, Morgan. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. To be honest with you, I'm really honored and to find out I'm your first I think what that really says is, is that I'm really reaching the fossilized stage within ophthalmology now because I do have a long history in ophthalmology. So I appreciate the acknowledgement of that and even more appreciate being able to spend the time with you today. So I do appreciate that. My life started pretty simple, really. I mean, I uh, come from an immigrant family. We're Greek Orthodox. I grew up and was born in Lansing, Michigan. Nothing too special or too fancy there, except the family was really tight. And we had a lot of family around us. So I always felt like I had a very good support system growing up. And so it was pretty normal until the fact, until my eight-year-old brother got sick. And when my eight-year-old brother got sick, most people don't know this, or only those that really know me very, very well. I lost a brother when I was 10. My brother passed away. So there were three boys. We were all pretty close. The one was a little bit younger. Matthew was five years younger than myself, and Tommy was in the middle. So I was the oldest. And there were a lot of expectations on me as the, as the oldest son and being from a pretty traditional Greek Orthodox background, if you will. Went to church, was expected to do well in school, saw the work ethic early on from both my parents and my grandfather. My grandfather owned a bar restaurant in Lansing, Michigan, which is also in Lansing, Michigan, Oldsmobile Town, where all the Oldsmobiles were manufactured at one time in Fisher Body there. And so a lot of people that were the factory workers from the auto industry would come in there. Lansing's also the capital of Michigan. And so it was another interesting thing. We lived in Detroit for a period of time, but I was born in Lansing. And we went to Detroit and when my brother got sick, we ended up having to stay in the Detroit area because Children's Hospital was the only really hospital at that time that could treat for cancer and especially the childhood cancer. So my brother, from the time of diagnosis to the time he passed, was about four months. And then our family plans had sort of got messed up, as you can well imagine at that point. It was a pretty traumatic time for my family, losing a brother at such an early age. And so those formed a lot of my inner thoughts and, and really a lot of my being at that time. We stayed in the Michigan area. We, we actually had moved to Birmingham when my brother was getting treated. 
at that time we lived in Detroit earlier. So moved from Lansing to Detroit. And then when my brother got sick, we had sold the house in Detroit. We were going to move to Lansing, ended up in Birmingham, stayed there for a couple of years. Sports were very important in my life at this time. And I started playing a lot of sports really from the time that I was 10 years old, started playing baseball and really through softball and whatnot and played on, on all the hardball leagues and, and softball leagues. And then as I got into junior high school at that time, it's not called, it wasn't called middle school back then. It was junior <laughs> high school. I was introduced to football and really football and wrestling were the two sports that I played all through high school and even into college. I was a, a scholarship athlete at Northwestern and went and played football all four years there and wrestled there my freshman year as well. So we didn't move to Lansing slash East Lansing, moved to East Lansing, where I graduated from high school until my sophomore year in high school. And then the family went back there. My grandmother was ill. My mom was going to watch after my grandparents. And we moved back to East Lansing. I graduated from high school from there. And then my father pulled me aside and he said, hey, Nick, you know, I don't know where you want to go to school, but I want you to go where you want to go. And since we lost your brother, I know your mom is like always trying to keep an eye on you and your brother, Matt. Too much so, he said. And he said, you know, you need to grow up and you need to be able to grow up and to grow up to be independent. And so he said, I really, as much as it hurts me to tell you this, because I, I want you around and I want you to be close, it would be better if you went away to school and you didn't stay here in East Lansing and go to school at Michigan State or go to school at Michigan. You need to go somewhere else. And so that was really, I think, really good advice for me because I didn't really realize at the time that having gone through that as a family, how tight the family was. And how my mother was just then all focused on making sure that my, my brother and I survived more than anything else. And so that was really good advice that my dad gave me then. And so when I had the opportunity to go to Northwestern, it was far enough away from home, but yet it was close enough that I could still get back to East Lansing quickly. And also a lot of my best friends, my friends from high school, ultimately they played in college as well. And several of the guys went to Michigan State and played there as well. So we were able to maintain that relationship. And ultimately, I introduced them to all my buddies at Northwestern. And, you know, we had some really nice times there. After college, can I walk us through what was next for you? So what was next after college was, is that, you know, it became evident that as I was graduating, that as I knew I was going into my senior year, what did I want to do? Well, my father was started in sales and my father was executive vice president of sales and marketing of a company called Wyman Gordon Company at the time. And they were a large forging company. And I got to know a little bit about Wyman Gordon and the forging business and what my father was doing in his position there. And so I gravitated toward sales and wanted to be in sales. And I took a lot of marketing classes and I took classes at Northwestern that were in the communications area and communications from a business perspective. And so I knew that I liked people and I liked to interact with people. And so I felt like sales was going to be something that I could probably do pretty well in. And I wanted to explore that. And so at Northwestern, they had a really good placement center. And so I started interviewing and I interviewed with IBM was coming in. And IBM was one of the preeminent companies. IBM and Xerox were probably two of the preeminent companies back in the 70s 
because it was in a, a very interesting time. Technology was starting to evolve. It was before the first PCs or anything like that. And it was before a lot of software development. It was mostly hardwired and computers fill a room. I mean, literally would fill an entire room. Today, what we do in a, on a PC is incredible. And every once in a while, I think back to that because when I think about what we were selling and how we got into this business back years ago. So long story short, I took a job. I was offered a job with IBM in Chicago area. And so again, you know, very good. I was coming out of school, had a great opportunity to go work for a company that was going to literally put me through training for four to six months and then require an annual schooling, if you will, for one week to four weeks at a time to take your sort of skill set to the next level. And it wasn't always about the products. It was more about building the relationships and what they called earning the right. And so they had a what they called it was a very customer-centric oriented sales process that was earning the right. And earning the right was just earning the right to be able to ask that prospect, that, that potential customer slash partner for the right to do business. And so you had to really figure out what the needs of the customer were. And sometimes those are very evident and sometimes they're not. But there, again, there's a very set series of steps that one goes through with some people that you might do it in a day where you find common ground and you earn the right. And other people, it might take a year and you might never get there. And then with a number of folks, you will spend enough time so that you actually start to understand their business, at least in the applications that you offer solutions to. You are in a position to be able to know that as well as they do and sometimes bring it out what some of those needs are. And then they become aware that I actually do have this and, and I do need this. And since we were selling technologies at that time that, that weren't like widespread and, and evident, it required some exploratory work in developing the relationship. I started by selling copiers for IBM. IBM was in the copier business. And what were the first office system machines? So leading to what are PCs and laptops, inkjet printers, laser printers, all these things that were part of making up the office. And um, I dealt with lots and lots of companies and of all different sizes all throughout the Chicagoland area. And then I became a specialist and I overlaid 10 of the what they call generalist reps. And then we started selling telecommunications where we were hooking up with the big data processing centers with the large computers to output to typewriters and whatnot, because otherwise they weren't capable of doing it at that time. And ultimately to first PCs. So that was, I got my first... That was super cool. And their discipline and the, so what I learned there was working hard and playing hard. They really like, you know, you were buttoned up, you know, blue suit, white shirt, button down shirt, tie every day, no matter what. First day I showed up at work, you know, because I was pretty big after I got out of school and everything and, and tailoring and I didn't have the money. <laughs> so, you know, I showed up at work and I had this this blue plaid sport coat on and I had a white shirt. I had this big wide tie and the branch manager calls me into his office and he said, who, by the way, I, I will always remember him fondly because his name was Bob Klein and he went to Michigan State originally, just pure serendipity. He'd gone to Michigan State. So 
kind of took a little liking to me being from East Lansing at the very beginning, except he didn't want to let me know that. So he goes, hey, you can't wear these ice cream suits. You know, you're like you're dispensing ice cream. You need to go get yourself a suit. I said, Mr. Klein, I can't afford to just go in and just buy a bunch of suits. And I'll be damned. He, he called his tailor and he gave me his credit card. And he told me to go down there and buy myself two or three suits and get fitted for the suits and pay them back when I could. Set me up down there and went. So that was, you know, that was another like really like kind of an interesting moment, I think, because that same guy, when I went in for my interview, I didn't tell you this, but it's, it's actually pretty interesting. He was sitting at his desk and he wasn't looking at me, Morgan. He was sitting the opposite way. And after I came in the office, he was like trying to make me sweat or something. And then he, tur- he turns around and he goes, hey, he goes, um, let me ask you a question, young man. He goes, this is now when I was still in school before I got the job. He said, let me ask you a question, young man. He goes, why would a company like IBM waste their time hiring a young punk like you? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I was like, I, the only thing I could think of is I said, if you really thought I was a punk, I don't think you'd be wasting your time. He looked at me and goes, well, that was okay. Sit down. <laughs> Wow. What a test. What a test to start off the interview. Yeah. So interesting stuff. And so I experienced a lot of success there at IBM. What I loved was that discipline and really the training and whatnot, because it really brought me up to speed business-wise very quickly. And they were very professional and whatnot business-wise. What I didn't care for was that in their regimentation, it was more seniority driven in order to earn dollars versus being really productive as a rep and being one of the top reps because you got paid on a different scale. And so I sold a lot more than a lot of the people that were there many, many years more than myself. And yet I was making a lot less money. So I had an opportunity to interview right before my third year anniversary at IBM. I got a phone call and I had an opportunity to interview at a company called American Hospital Supply. This is the late 70s, give or take, right? This is 1979, 1980. In 1980, I ultimately took a job with American Hospital Supply. I think I was lucky. I didn't really know just how important that was going to be to my foundation and future on a going forward basis. What I did know was that they were a Chicago-based company. They had many, 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 many surgical products that they, I found the company interesting because not only did they, they make and sell what they made, but they also were one of the largest distributors of products in the medical and surgical hospital based field at that time. And so they were the largest company like that. And so I happened to be interviewing and was hired for what they called the V Mueller division. And V Mueller was all surgical instruments and implants. Okay, so this is where things start to get really interesting. We sold everything from neurosurgical shunts to open heart surgical instruments to every kind of surgical instrument you can imagine. And then we started selling quite a few silicone goods for various types of surgery. Drains, like I said, shunts that were, you know, brain shunts, aneurysm clips, plastic surgery things. I sold you know, breast implants, I sold penile implants, we sold every kind of surgical, if it was a surgical instrument or implant, we sold. Also, we were distributors for, at that time, we were distributors for the Zeiss operating microscope. And so 
I sold quite a few operating microscopes in the Chicago area. And then Zeiss went away and went more to distributors. And so they went to smaller individual, smaller territory distributors. And then the Leica scopes came in and American Hospital Supply did a deal. V. Mueller did a deal with, with Leica. So I sold the very first Leica operating microscope used in ophthalmology in an ENT surgery in Chicago at that time when they first came in. And so we distributed those as well. And so around then this 1982-83 timeframe, so a couple of years into this position, and I loved it, by the way, because I could get into every department. I'd go into a hospital and I literally I'd go from the outpatient instrumentation department to materials management to the ER to the OR and I watch surgery. Like I loved watching surgery. Yeah. And so what started off really for me is an opportunity where I could earn as I produced, you know, that's what attracted me to the businesses that you could earn what you produce off of there versus a just a pure seniority based business. So the more years you were there, the better that you did. And I was young and hungry and I was com very competitive having played the sports all through college and, and done all that. And, and so I was just really driven and motivated to do so. Plus I was starting a family, which ultimately I held my career back to some degree because I wanted my girls to graduate from high school and to move into college before I was willing to move anywhere. I stayed grounded in that Midwest. And as you know, moving into ophthalmology, most of the companies, if you're not in Fort Worth, you're somewhere out in California, you know? And so I sort of held myself back in some areas, did some other really entrepreneurial things. Things started to evolve. And so American Hospital Supply was purchased by Baxter Travenall in the 1983 over the 4th of July timeframe. It was one of the first of the, of the hostile takeovers because American was a bigger company than, than Baxter. And they came in and did a hostile takeover of American Hospital. And they started selling off the divisions that were not part of their core. And so about a year before that, year and a half before that happened, we started selling some products from Higher Schulte Medical Optics Center. And enter Bill Link as the vice president of the medical specialties group in intraocular lenses that were called Medical Optics Center. It was the predecessor to AMO, American Medical Optics. So we were MOC, Medical Optics Center. We became AMO, which was American Medical Optics after American Hospital Supply during that. And so we started distributing the AMO intraocular lenses. And so when I got into ophthalmology and I started learning about these lenses in cataract surgery and Bill, Charles Kelman was developing a Yad laser. They started with the phaco emulsification. It was starting to develop that. I went from rigid anterior chamber lenses and intracapsular surgery to extracapsular surgery to small incision cataract surgery. It was part of all of that revolution, if you will. And so got to meet people like Charlie Kelman, meet people like Bill Simcoe, you know, with the Simcoe loop lenses at that time. I meet a, a doctor by the name of Singh Panu, who had a one-piece PMMA lens at that time that was one of the first with the flexible haptics and whatnot that we did. And so loved ophthalmology. So when this hostile takeover took place, I knew my life was never going to be the same. I wanted to move into ophthalmology. The doctors loved technology. Um, the cataract surgery was cool. They were doing great things to restore people's vision and always wanted to make it better. Yet it wasn't life and death. 
Like I watched a lot of really gruesome stuff and neurosurgery and cardiology and cardiovascular surgery. And I sold graphs and, you know, they'd be dissecting aneurysms and all these things that were life and death for the patient and subsequently put a lot of stress on these physicians. And the ophthalmologists were sort of had a lot cooler kind of attitude. They were hungry for the technology. There was good collaboration with the companies. They always, you know, wanted to teach. And so people like Modest Craft and Howard Lieberman took me under their wing. And, you know, I got to go into surgery with them. And early on, they put me through the test first. I mean, you had to earn the right. <laughs> earn the right to go into surgery with those guys. But when they took you into surgery, you know, you knew you were going to really learn something that day, something you could take somewhere else that would be helpful. Wow. Ophthalmologists wanted to be teachers. And so really that got me into ophthalmology. I was able to make the transfer over after the transition. And then we were sold to Allergan. So American Medical Optics became Allergan Medical Optics. Same people, except for the corporate the corporate structure and management. Bill came over as the CEO. I worked for AMO for a period of time, and then Bill started Chiron in 1987. So it's really interesting, Morgan, because you made the comment that you know people early on when we, when you and I were chatting that people um, you don't always end up where you started. But what's happened in many of these cases is that these were evolutions. Things began to evolve. So some of these acquisitions, the basic face of the company stayed the same, like evolving from American to Allergan Medical Optics. We were still selling the same products. We were doing the same thing. You know, we just naturally moved over and we, you know, we sort of did the same thing for different reasons that the corporate entities were running and whatnot. But you're still contributing the same sorts of things. And then the 1986 Bill had an opportunity to joint venture with a biotech company called Chiron. And Chiron was looking at various, ultimately, you know, they developed, they were looking at trying to develop an AIDS vaccine. AIDS started around that time and they were looking for cures for that. We started out as a biotech company. We were looking at wound, wound healing factors, growth factors, and corneal wound healing agents. And developed a, had a cornea storage medium. Dick Lindstrom was running the corneal bank up in Minnesota. And that's how we got to know Dick. Because they were using the cornea storage media for the, the donor corneas that we were getting into. Ultimately, none of those growth factors and those things ended up really working out for the company. But during this 10-year period of time, Chiron was well-funded. They were a public company. They were making real headways in their areas of the business. Ultimately, they sold to Novartis, but they funded us and funded Bill went on a consolidation streak within the industry. And that's where the first people that were hired at that company, Andy Corley, myself, some guys that aren't with us anymore, God bless them. But at any rate, when we went to work there, Bill started getting the funding through Chiron to be able to consolidate the industry. So we bought J&J Iolab, we bought US Surgical, we bought the lenses from Intraoptics. And so we started consolidating all that. We had licensed foldable lens technology from Star. The technology for what ultimately became Crystal Lens was developed at that, at that time. And ultimately, Andy had taken that and spun off. And that's when we knew we had to like reinvent ourselves. 
when the corneal wound healing factors and all those things sort of failed in reinventing is where we got into refractive surgery. So on top of all these other things, how are we going to sell what were somewhat generic lenses and whatnot at that time? Well, we created this, you know, started and really created this, this refractive surgery market, if you will, started with RK and it went from RK Charles Kaysbeer courses, Dick Lindstrom courses, Steve Slade courses in doing the RK procedures. And that evolved into ALK. And that was Eric Weinberg's family's company on the, on the first microkeratomes. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about ALK for a second? Just because we, we haven't talked about it much on the show. Sure. So ALK was really interesting because, first off, you have to understand, Bill, he had a keen interest in cornea-based surgery. And you know, we did the freeze-dried lenticles. We did all these different things. You know, we had the crew mic device where we were lathing corneas and all these different things trying to come up with means of reducing really corneal transplants but being able to use tissue, you know, in these areas. And so when we started learning about the microkeratome and realized that you could cut a lenticle with the microkeratome. And so at first it was very risky because you have to manually put the, like, the keratome together. Like it was very manually put the keratome together and then manually screw in a plate that would allow you to cut the corneal tissue. So you were going to cut a flap and then you were going to cut the corneal, the corneal tissue and they were going to lay the flap back down. But it wasn't really a flap. We were completely dissecting the top of the cornea at that time. Wow. So we lost corneas, the corneas, they dried up. I mean, all of this stuff, anything you can imagine. But it didn't really deter us, you know, because we realized that there was, a, there was an application there somewhere and there were enough doctors that were seriously interested enough in doing this. And, and so people started doing a lot of these in their in-office surgery suites. Like, believe it or not, setting up in-office surgery suites and then things started moving towards the ASCs. And then depending on whether you were a certificate of need state or whether you could do triple HC, you know, and set up a set up your own suite or get certified in that, then it started expanding from there. But at first, all those refractive procedures people were doing in their in-office suites if they didn't have an ASC. So yeah, it's kind of gone back 360. Now that's gone 360 now when you think about people doing premium surgeries and, and whatnot in their in-office suites, because we set up lots of them back there in the 90s. And so ALK was short-lived because we started moving on to the laser. So another thing that Chiron owned was the Technoloss. And Vizex, of course, started and whatnot. And so we had an, an eczema laser. And so we started teaching. You know, we went from ALK to PRK to LASIK and sort of that evolution there. Right. And Chiron acquired an eczema laser. Who did Chiron acquire that from? Chiron bought uh, the Technoloss. The Technoloss. That's what it was. Okay, you said that. So Technoloss was a German company and, and bought the company Technoloss. Okay. Because there were three, I think at that point there were around three, right? Because there was the Summit Laser. It was Summit. It was Autonomous. And, Vi and Vizex was, was one. Vizex. Yep. Yep. And then Technoloss. And then okay. there was some consolidation. Summit and Autonomous merged and, and got together there. Ultimately, Alcon bought Autonomous and then abandoned them and, and ended up with Wavelight at the end. And VizX became part of, at that time, it was, it was Abbott, AMO, and then AMO became Abbott. Right. 
and then to where it is today with J and J. I mean, this is this is so cool to me to think back about all these things that many of us have in our offices. One of these Eximer lasers, and to think back to how things were in the mid '90s and who owned what and where things have shifted from them. And it's I think it's so cool to think about to kind of know the history. But then again. I guess I'm biased because I am hosting a historical podcast. Yeah, well, obviously people are drawn to things that they like to do, right? And so loving technology as you do and being part of, I mean, let's face it, you're part of the history of ophthalmology yourself, you know, given your own involvement in ophthalmology at an early age and learning about it there and deciding to become an ophthalmologist. This is how things sort of happen. You know, sometimes you think it's it's like all this, this planning and it's not necessarily planning, but it's having an open mind and being willing to to be able to evolve. And as long as you're a critical thinker and you're willing to evolve and you're willing to put in time in order to learn to do something and to have some pride in wanting to do a good job doing it, then you have chances to be able to find the right things for you. We talked about Chiron with ALK and then moving into to Exmers. So what happened with Chiron from there? You know, When did you move on to the next stage? Yeah, so again, now this kind of takes me back to where I was not wanting to really move from the Midwest in the Chicago area because my daughters were in high school then at that time, getting to be that age in the mid nineties, you know, moving up into the later nineties period at that point. So when we acquired the Hansatome, that was like the predecessor. I was the director of refractive sales at Chiron at that point. And Steve Slade and I took American doctors to China in Shanghai and taught them how to do LASIK surgery at that point with that, with the microkeratome. And so that's how he and I became very close was through those courses and through the PRK, ALK, LASIK courses, if you will. And so we took doctors overseas to teach them how to do the LASIK and whatnot, and then how to use the equipment and everything. So ultimately it became pretty evident that Chiron and Chiron ophthalmics, that we were, were not really a fit at that point we were gonna move into different directions because Chiron was going into the biotech area. It was going to be acquired by Novartis and they were pure biotech and we were pure device. We didn't have any pharmaceuticals or anything like that. And so ultimately we were acquired by Bausch and Lowe. Bausch and Lowe bought Chiron. And right around that time when, when this started going on, there was a need because LASIK surgery had not really taken off. It was in its infancy at that point. Microkeratomes were difficult to use. It required some manual putting together of the instrumentation. It required a, a lot of babysitting and really making sure that people were trained properly. Early results needed to evolve and get better. And so when I knew that the writing was on the wall, that Chiron ultimately was going to sell Chiron Ethalmics, and I knew that because I was, you know, a certain level in the organization and people knew. Bill and Andy, Andy was VP of sales at the time, they let me go off and set up a company with a guy by the name of Paul Elin up there in Minnesota. And we set up a company called Refractive Surgical Resources, where we could acquire the microkeratomes through Chiron. And we were hiring, we were buying the microkeratomes, we were hiring all the surgical techs. And we had a mobile surgical services business where we could teach people how to use the microkeratomes and help them get better results in LASIK. And they would rent that from us. We would basically contract service 
because a microkeratomes they had a hard time building them and getting them you know building them in any quantities especially in, in the early early days it, it wasn't very easy to make those like a mechanical assembly very quick and secondly they were difficult to for people to use and implement afterwards so we set up this business refractive surgical resources and Chiron was supplying us the equipment then Chiron was sold to Bausch and Loeb. We continued to run the RSR, Refractive Surgical Resources. I ultimately transitioned from Chiron to Refractive Surgical Resources on a full-time basis, could stay in the Midwest, located up in Minnesota. I was flying up there every, uh, staying two weeks, three weeks at a time up there and coming back, I could drive back to Chicago and whatnot. And then we sold the company to Laser Vision Centers because Laser Vision Centers was mobilizing the Eximer Laser. So very quickly, we went from like zero procedures when we started to about 250,000 LASIK procedures in our little company. We had 33 microkeratomes and 17 full-time and 15 part-time techs. And pretty soon we were doing like 250,000 procedures and growing very, very quickly. And about half of that business, they were utilizing a mobile Exumer laser. I mean, it's brilliant. It's really smart. Bring it to the surgeons. The surgeons don't have to buy it and then they can utilize it. We have some semblance of that today, right? With some roll on, roll off stuff too, still, it's still around. Yeah. These were the early days of roll on, roll off. You know, it's interesting because ultimately once doctors started doing enough procedures, then supply of keratons improved and so on and so forth, they could get their own. They would get their own and they'd evolve, but there were always new people at that time, you know, the business again, doctors are hungry for technology. They're looking for solutions to their needs. And we came in with a need satisfaction solution at that point. So we became part of Laser Vision Centers. And that's really where I had the opportunity to be able to shift over onto sort of the provider side of the business. And so I learned a lot about how these practices run and the refractive practices run, OD networking, being able to grow, how you grow your business and, and how you educate patients and convert and really how these centers are run because I was responsible for doing the deals, you know, between MDs and ODs and, and, uh, and uh, whatnot, and still providing these services, these mobile services, if you will, which then evolved into fixed site. We started putting fixed site lasers together and doing joint ventures and whatnot as a group there. Wow. That's an awesome experience. It's, it's cool that you got to be on like the patient care side. It was awesome because you know, really learned what drives patients, also learned about some of the challenges that physicians have internal to the practice with turnover of staff and how do you have the right people in place and pick the right people for the right positions and doctors are running a business and, and running a big business and they don't always teach that in school people have to kind of learn the hard way to do that so we were business people we could do that we would do that with the physicians and groups you know that's awesome so from there you went on to a completely different role right yeah with the star so that was an interesting story just because John Gilbert, who had been the, the CEO of J&J Iolab, and he, he was retired, was on the board of directors at Star. And Star had a lot of issues and had a lot of problems and whatnot. And by now, my girls had moved into college. And so now I felt like I could take my career and move from this middle management or smaller company type, small company um ownership and now could get some public company experience, experience in dealing with various boards and experience with the public markets, if you will. And at the same time, work to launch a technology at that point. So we rebranded Star and rebranded the branded, I should say, the Vizian ICL, 
course, it wasn't the version that it is today, but it was the, the first version of the ICL, go through the clinical approval process and stage, and then ultimately launch the ICL. I was fortunate enough to be able to launch the ICL. That's awesome. So you were, I mean, we hear a lot about Star right now with Evo and there's ads kind of <laughs> everywhere right now with Joe Jonas and everyone else. I feel like it's taking over my Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, to have launched one of the initial products with the Vizian ICL. And of course it was a very different lens, right? It needed two LPIs and it didn't launch with the Toric, right? It was just a monofocal lens. At that time it was just a monofocal yep. and it wasn't super easy to sell it had a wide range of approval but obviously you know doctors were correcting a pretty wide range with with lasik and were comfortable with lasik it had to be done in a different environment it costs a lot more and so it was not an easy sell it gave great vision and the sizing was a real challenge if you will to nail down the the sizing parameters, you know, because you didn't want to get too much vault or too little vault with that and, and needed to get good results in order for, especially for doctors in the U.S., we have much more medical legal liability in the U.S. than people do in other parts of the world, if you will. So arguably not necessarily as easy to launch in the U.S. as it, as it was outside the U.S. for some of these reasons, you know. Right. And you're going against the grain for a little bit, too, with LASIK. You weren't necessarily fighting against LASIK. You were actually just offering another option for people who may not have been a candidate for LASIK. What were kind of some of your experiences with, with, with the launch there? So we did a series of, of courses, actually. And some of those courses were down in the Dominican Republic with Juan Baye. He had a, a very nice clinic there. It was easy to get there and into Santa Domingo, get in and out of there. And so we started by doing courses with Juan Baye there in, in the Dominican. And so doctors could go down there. We could take a didactic. Then they could see surgery see one, do one, sure. ask questions, go through those. And so we did those. Those were really successful. And that got people comfortable with being able to know that they could do the surgery and whatnot when they got back. And so we sort of worked with people that were known early adopters that were willing to take the risks to, you know, to do this to start and whatnot. And, and actually one of the prolific implanters of that time and really had done more than anyone in the clinical study was Dave Delaney. And Dave Delaney out of Arizona, he did over 200 of them in the clinical study. Wow. And so Barnett Delaney Perkins Eye Center at that time, they were known as before private equity, they, they were the biggest implanter. And then Scott Barnes, interestingly enough, was my customer in Fayetteville, North Carolina at Fort Bragg. And Greg Parkhurst, you know, of course, uh, in Texas. And these guys, they did a lot of them in the military. And then Steve Shellhorn picked it up in San Diego, you know, with the Navy. And so those were the people that really laid the seeds down, if you will, for the ICL, as I know it, going back that far. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. So from Star, you went to another well-known company that many of us still have that technology in, in our ORs today. You want to talk about, about your next step? Yeah. So Star was going through a lot of change at that point and a lot of, you know, going through some turmoil. I felt like for me, it would be best for my career to sort of evolve and, and to move out of there again. I was there for six and a half years, seven years at, at Star. And then I had the opportunity to launch the WaveTech product, the Aura. And so same thing, you know, because I had a, a successful launch with the, the ICL and it had successful launch previous with the ALK and, and whatnot. I had sort of evolved into having an, another opportunity to go in and launch a, a technology and a product. And that really was the Aura product at that time. 
what was missing for me there was I wanted to be what I realized a lot after after I launched and, and had a successful launch and, and got quite a few products out there and really you know, move, was moving the product. I missed the treatment area. I liked to provide solutions on the treatment side. I found out I wasn't as excited by the diagnostic side. Just me personally. Yeah. Yeah. And so I had an opportunity to, you know, after launching successfully Aura, I had an opportunity to go ahead and move over to Lenzar. And interestingly enough, that same board member from Star, John Gilbert, was on the earlier board at Lenzar. And once again, John appeared in my life and, and recruited me away from WaveTech to Lenzar. Wow. So tell us about your Lenzar journey, because obviously that's where you are now and you've been there for some time. That's what a lot of, a lot of us younger kids know you as. So Lenzar has been a, a really interesting journey as well. In fact, it's been the longest of, of the journeys. And quite frankly, it's one of those things where my stage of my career and whatnot, it's one of these things that I'm committed there to see it all the way through. Now it's more about doing the right things, mentoring younger people, being very successful within Lenzar, and really supporting all the employees there that have supported the company and the doctor community and whatnot for a long time. And so really proud of the fact that we've been able to retain a lot of the core group of people at the company. And the people at the company, they care about the company a lot. And so that's one of the things, you know, and so taking all this culture that I've learned over the years and really starting to try to bring that into Lenzar was really important. I didn't come in as the CEO, I came in as the chief commercial officer. Because again, most of my background and career here and at WaveTech, I left as chief commercial officer was was to come go in as as chief commercial officer there, and that was a completely different environment there because the technology wasn't ready to launch when I went there, and yet I was brought there to really set up and to launch the product, and so it wasn't until two and a quarter years later that I became the CEO, and so I was setting up for the ultimately it was going to be the launch. And I would say that a lot of the things that I learned in my career came back to roost there. You know, it was not an easy, an easy route. We were the last company standing, if you will. We had gone from being one of the first in terms of getting into the technology. And Lenzar, when they first started, some people might not know this, but that AR originally stood for accommodation restoration. And so Lenzar looking to develop a procedure that would soften the nucleus of the lens in order to restore the accommodative effect through age. You know, because the lens gets harder, it starts to get bigger. So they were very focused on softening of the lens, but realized fairly quickly that was going to cost a whole, that was going to take way more money than anybody was ever going to be willing to invest and likely take way more time than ever was going to be successful. And so, you know, evolved fairly quickly, but then LensX got their product out and purchased by Alcon. Catalyst ultimately was, was purchased by Abbott. And Bausch & Lohm went and reacquired Technoloss at that time. Technoloss had spun off after the Chiron days, and then they, re, they repurchased Technoloss again for the Victus. And so we were like you know the last sort of little independent standing at that point. And so it was, a, it was a pretty circuitous path with Lenzar. It's been a lot of ups and downs. And quite frankly, without all the experience that I gained over the years through all these other challenges and whatnot, if you will, I'm not sure that I, I would have been equipped to necessarily deal with it that way. But uh, there's a lot of really good employees there 
and the team is very, very strong. And what I did bring there is, is that we are a surgeon centric organization. And I don't take that lightly. I don't say that lightly. That's like the culmination of 40 plus years of, of career where I've learned these things going back to the IBM days. It's all about the customer. Without the customer, you're not even, you don't even exist. There's no reason for you to exist without the customer, number one. Number two, you better be listening to what people say. And if you start hearing the same things or similar things all along, then you better be moving in those directions. And you better be committed to continuous improvement. And so the femtosecond laser business really intrigued me. You know, when I was at WaveTech, I wanted to get, like I said, I, I realized that I needed to be on the treatment side of a business, you know. And I think that the lasers, to some degree, they fell short of what the promise was of the femto lasers when they first came up. And they didn't quite meet with the expectations and because they came into the marketplace with so much excitement and everybody jumped into it. And then it became very polarized. And even today, to some degree, you know, you look at we're 12 years into the product cycle, if you will. And today you've got 52% of physicians either have access or looking to get access. And of that, only about 2% of those, 2.6% of those are doctors that are completely new to femtosecond laser assisted cataract surgery. You got about 35% of the market. These are market scope numbers here. 35% of the market where doctors have no plans to do it. And about another 11% that are unsure of, 12 years into it, unsure. So I would say that the market is, you know, the, the technology has left doctors, you know, polarized in some cases because a lot of people have gotten tremendous benefit from it and wouldn't think of doing, you know, their premium cases without it. And yet you still have, you know, it's like 55%, 45%. And so we're really committed to bringing something special to the table, which is what you see with Ally now. How did Lenzar make the switch? Like they already had a femtosecond laser that was trying to soften the lens and then they decided that they're going to apply it towards cutting the cornea and breaking the lens down for cataract surgery. So quite frankly, it was a lot easier to damage the lens. It was a lot easier to break up the lens and uh, be able to do a viable cataract procedure, do your capsulorexis. And we had some interesting measurement technology in Lenzar. And we needed that technology when we were trying to soften the lens, you needed to know very precisely how you were going to shoot, where you were going to shoot, and then to be able to apply the energy such that, that you could soften the lens. And so that transition really to the cataract part of it wasn't as difficult as it was to try to come up with the right procedure to soften the nucleus without causing a cataract or without creating some other visual disturbance. And ultimately, when we found out that what we were doing was is that the patients were getting like this really great result, like very quickly. And we treated patients. I mean, maybe we didn't even treat the right patients or whatnot, because we, because you know, under do no harm principle, you know, we're treating patients that have already signed up for cataract surgery that are in early stages, but were committed to cataract surgery, unless, of course, they felt like they didn't need it all of a sudden with this. And we saw some really interesting results early on, but they didn't last. And so we started looking at things cellular-wise and ATP levels were changing and these types of things that would drop very quickly. Patients became hyperopic very quickly. So they would see great, then they become hyperopic very quick. And we, we never really 
like I said, we would have taken a lot more money. And there's still people at Lenzar that want to do some research in this area, but I, I won't let them spend the money to do it. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think I don't think my board would, would let us spend the money to do it either. That's so cool, though. I had no idea. I mean, that is really cool. That's a really cool origin story. So moving forward, I mean, you guys you guys developed a femto unit from something that was initially soft in the lens. Now it's for cataract surgery. Did femto get the same boost when Andy Corley went to CMS and got all that changed? Sure. So the short answer is yes, but it wasn't as obvious because the industry had to go in front of CMS with physicians as well and meet with CMS in order to have them view it as something that wasn't just doing what the reimbursed procedure already does. Because they weren't going to approve something that you were going to be able to charge the patient for, nor were they going to provide additional reimbursement for the femtosecond laser procedure. If you're doing a capsulorexis and you're fracturing the lens because you're using FACO, you still are going back in and using the FACO. And with the capsulorexis, you can do a manual, a manual rexis. So if that's all you're doing, you're not going to be able to do it in your standard cataract patients. And I think that they had to understand that there was a lot of procedure planning and there was a lot of imaging involved in order for these lasers to be able to work and be able to provide a benefit for the surgeon, particularly like the way we measure the capsulorexis placement. Not only can you size it and shape it very precisely, but you can locate it where you want because of the measurements that the system takes through whatnot. And so once um, CMS saw that, then they said that if doctors felt that there was a value to it, that you could offer it in the premium patients, in essence, you charge the patient, you're not really charging them for the rexus and the fragmentation, you're charging them for the overall procedure and the imaging associated. So if a doctor felt like it was going to give them better outcomes, and they could deal with the refractive outcomes that way or the patient's visual recovery or the healing, however they felt about it, they could put it into the premium procedure. Hmm. Fascinating. That's really cool. And then take us forward from there. So now you guys have developed the, the world's first ever combined unit, right? Where you've combined Femto and FACO. Correct. And we had fully integrated that device. We did our first clinical cases, you know, before we submitted to the FDA. Now it's going back to the beginning of 2022. And uh, we got the product approved in April of 2022, and we launched at the end of August of 2022. So it's been about a year, you know, the launch. And interesting times, if you will, you know, given supply chain issues and coming out of COVID and so on and so forth. And so I'm really proud of the team because we developed that from the very beginning and from scratch in about two, two and a half years, you know, to approval from drawing it out and writing specifications to on the market. So that was a pretty interesting journey, if you will. And so we were looking for a company that we could work with from a, the FACO perspective because we wanted to integrate the technology and make a device that was small enough because some of the limitations associated with the first generation technology had to do with inefficiencies that existed with the current technology having to put it in a different room, the whole procedure that people had to develop in order to be able to do it, not exactly the best experience for the patient if you're moving patients around and reprepping patients and two timeouts, all, the, all these things. And so we started thinking that if we could integrate a fake emulsification device, that we could start to change the way that other 45% of the, of the people look at the business and the market. But finding a FACO partner, if you will, not that simple in the big picture, you know, because the 
other companies have a competitive product from the FACO side of it, and they, they have a competitive product from the FEMTO side, and they're bundling all of their products. There's a different kind of a different approach, if you will, to how you're doing business with people. So from a practical perspective, R&D-wise and whatnot, not sort of not the right mix, if you will, so or match. So how do you, how do you do this? So Hurtley is an independent company. They're a family-owned company, and we had approached them, and we were convicted enough. You know, we were enough had enough conviction around the the technology and the product that they uh, that they did it. Now we ended up getting the integration done, and they didn't get approval on the module of the device, the one that was most equivalent that we were putting into the Ally device. And so when they didn't. The first 20 machines when we got approval are out in the field right now with the early device, but it's modular. And the next machines that we put out into the field don't have the early device in it now. And we were going to require it because we weren't interested in competing with all the FACO companies. That's not a market or a game that we wanted to be into. We have the best FEMTO technology and, and we're developing the best femto technology. And so the combined technology, we were all in where it was going to be a complete unit integrated regardless. Well, when they didn't get it approved, we felt like the ally had enough benefits from a next generation perspective to the business that we were going to launch it as a standalone femto unit. That's what we did. And quite frankly, it's been a lot easier to get people into the Ally Femto because now they don't have to worry about the FACO. And so ultimately, that will be modular. When I say ultimately, meaning that if the doctor wants the FACO, they can get the FACO and we'll offer the FACO. And so early is uh, they're close to resubmitting their 510K. And so when they get that resubmitted and they gain approval, that's something I can't control, something Lenzard can't control. Right. And so when they get that approved, Basically, I need about 30 to 45 days to, to be able to refile and then we'll refile. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, I, I applaud you for coming up with this higher efficiency model of combining Femto and FACO. And my next question is, when you add in on the microscope and the surgical chair and, you know, making it an, all, an all-in-one unit, you know? Morgan, don't joke around about that, buddy. That is something that we think about quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, me too. That's, that's what I imagine, you know, what I want when I, and we're getting prospecting now, but what I see is as we start down this path of consolidating devices and becoming more efficient in our space and, you know, this goes to sustainability as well, but I imagine walking in into an OR and I basically have one piece of equipment and it's everything, right? It's my scope and my Femto and FACO and pedals and chair. Everything's all integrated and the patient bed just comes in and docks and, Maybe I shouldn't put this in the podcast. I should go, you know, we should go out and design it or something like that. But, but I mean, that's, that's what I imagine. That's what I want as a surgeon. That's what I want. I want to walk in and just, you know. So Morgan, Lenzar is very, we're very software based with interchangeable type hardware type based. This is what we think about when we start the development process to begin with. And so just like, you know, the modular, you know, when early didn't get approved, now we've pulled the, the fake allowed and we'll put it back in. We can, that's a field that can be a field upgrade. We have intellectual property. And the, one of the things that PDL did for us when they owned us before they spun us off is that they allowed us to go out and acquire intellectual property that was pertinent and that we thought would be valuable to the future of this platform as, as we went. And so we acquired some significant IP related to 
the integration of the fake emulsification device and the sharing of one graphic user interface and the database associated with that so that so that we can send data to the FACO and vice versa and optimize the procedure that way. But more importantly, we got IP that also allows us to attach to an operating, operating microscope. So we have intellectual property around the integration to operating microscope and creating a workstation. And so we've thought about this but because, again, as a small company, we weren't making and didn't have an operating microscope and technology is in flux right now from a microscope perspective. It's moving into the digital age. And so we needed to be able to do right now what we could actually control and not worry, but think about how it might work in flow and what we have, what we have to do to change as that technology becomes more evident and emerges. So as it moves from what you know microscope technology has been for years and years and years and years and is now moving towards a digital age, will it be heads-up display? Will it be on a headset? It might be all of the above, but at any rate, that microscope technology needs to be developed. So you're not trying to, in essence, co-develop. So you're making big changes here, but rather it's about the integration of the devices. And so we were just uh, patient a little bit on that and didn't want to have that stop us from being able to launch with a, with a platform like the, uh, like the Ally. I love it. That's so cool. I think that's so cool. So, all right, you've had so much experience. You know, know we communicate with all these pre-op devices, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I heard that. I mean, I don't have y'all's laser, but I've seen all the demos and stuff like that, but yes, I know that, that it's integrated. (laughs) (laughs) it's really cool and i think all of this technology is moving us in a direction where we can all better take care of patients and i think that's the important thing and and you've seen that over your career so thinking back over your career and this may be a hard question if you had to pick two products whether it's something you worked with or not what did you think was the most integral to getting us to where we are today in terms of patient care oh my god so this is a hard answer because some of it is a little serendipity. Like, for example, fake emulsification was started. People were doing it, trying to make improvement, almost abandoned it. But there were two catalysts associated with small incision surgery and being able to ultimately make the FACO the standard of care. That's viscoelastic and foldable lenses. Those weren't happening because of each other and whatnot, viscoelastics were being developed and foldable intraocular lenses were being developed. But heretofore, prior to that, emulsification caused a lot of, it was a lot of heat generation. There were a lot of burns. The fluidics weren't near as good and stable. You had a lot of things going on with the FACO that were keeping adoption from taking place. And so, yes, fluidics are better. Yes, it's it's a superior technology today to what it was. But the facilitator for getting more people to do it was like, oh, yeah, plus you had to enlarge the incision. So you go ahead and you go in and you do this FACO. Why would you do the FACO and then enlarge the incision? Because you had to yank, be able to put the lens in, the IOL. So viscoelastic and foldable IOLs for certain were key drivers in my mind to fake emulsification. So I'm going to give you extra kudos for that answer because I don't even know if viscoelastic has been mentioned on this show, which to think about doing almost any intraocular surgery nowadays without viscoelastic is it's 
incredible to, to even think about. I mean, sure, we can do some things now with AC maintainers and things like that, but viscoelastics, I think that's such a great point and something that just I'm shocked hasn't been mentioned yet, but you're absolutely right. Think about the evolution at that time because you were putting in these foldable lenses at first with folding forceps and you were opening them up in the interior chamber and then putting them in. And so it's a combination of these things that are serendipitous in terms of how and why and whatnot, but the fact that they came together allowed in many ways a lot of the other things to occur and the other things to get better, you know. So for me, when I see that, and because I, I think back to the interior chamber lenses and moving from intracap to extra cap and then extra cap as we were starting to try to get to smaller and smaller incisions, you know, and work with different lens materials and whatnot. For me, I see that as being something that was really key from a cataract surgery perspective, you know. That's awesome. No, that's, that's, I, I love that answer. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining. I mean, this has been, seriously, this has been amazing. I've, I've, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I love the history of, of the different companies and all that you've been involved with. You've touched so many lives indirectly and directly in all your work in ophthalmology. So thank you for all that you've done for our field. And thanks for joining us today. No problem. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.